This podcast celebrates the cultural connections between the UK and New York. I'm Hannah Young and you're listening to Brits in the Big Apple. My guest today is Andy Staples, a prolific concert performer who's sung with the likes of the Met Opera, the LSO and many others. And he's also made a series of music films bringing together his experience on stage as both a performer and director. And he's based in the UK, but spends a lot of time in New York. And I'm delighted to catch him on his latest trip to the US. Andy, welcome to Brits and the Big Apple. Thanks for having me. Uh, I I wonder if you could give our audience a brief overview of how you came to be an opera singer. Well, I started, um, apparently, I started singing before I could speak. So my dad tells me, singing the theme tune to Holiday 80 in the back of the car um, before. And so, but I'd always had a, a, you know, was always making noises of of some kind. And I ended up at choir school in in London, St. Paul's Cathedral, and was there for five years, um, which was an incredible sort of, you know, way of of just being a sort of professional musician from age eight, which is insane. And the guys who sing in the choir behind you, there's the men in the choir. Lots of them were, um, you know, music students, maybe opera singers part-time or teachers or so on. And I always had this sort of feeling, I'm standing in front of the tenors. It's like, I want to be one of those guys one day. So I think without realizing it, I think I set myself on the on the path to doing that. And then I sang a lot at school and at university. I was in the, the choir at King's College, Cambridge. Um, and then after... Yeah, a couple of years there, I went to the Royal College of Music in London um, to study opera properly. And, you know, because one of the things about opera singers, you always get a bit of a bad reputation if you're if you're a kind of English choir singer, because they sort of think, oh, these guys, they, they turn up here, they can sight read anything, but they can't really make the operatic noise. <laughs> you know, you, you need a, ch- a church to sound good. Wow. Really, yeah. So you have to get that sort of bashed out of you at music college and learn all sort of Italian. Get the creds. Yeah. Um, and then I, I was very lucky because I, I straight out of college, I, uh, I did a, a role at the, at, at the um, at Covent Garden Royal Opera House. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't really have time to realise that was sort of amazing and, and, you know, I should have been nervous, but didn't really have time. And then, yeah, one thing led to another and suddenly it was my, my nine to five. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and tell us what you're doing out here in the US at the moment. So I, I'm on route to Phoenix, Arizona, um, where I'm going to be working with uh, one of the one of the US's sort of leading ch- professional chamber choirs, the Phoenix Chorale, Grammy Award winning um, Phoenix Chorale, who who and it will be their first concert back since pandemic, um, and we're making a sort of the plan is to make a documentary about that and to about some of the people in the choir and what singing means to them and to the community in in Phoenix, which is, I'm sure you know, one of the fastest growing cities in the US and culturally really on the up. Mm. Um, and I think the, the, the Phoenix Chorale is going to be a, a key player in that sort of mm. journey of the next couple of decades. Mm. Um, and it's really nice that that's being conducted by a, a fellow Brit, a guy called Chris Gavitas, who... I knew when I was a student at university and we, we were rivals. He was in the St. John's choir and I was in King's choir. It was like the sharks and the jets, you know, <laughs> we'd meet in the sort of Trinity street in the middle of the night. Um, and so Chris is now there. And he, then he went on to be a King singer. The sort of, I don't know if you know the King singers, but they're, um, 
you know, five, they do sort of a range of, of you know, singing close harmony to, to all kinds of modern stuff as well. Um, and typically they're, they're a huge deal in the US. So uh, he, him to get that job is a, is a massive deal for, for him, but, but, but also it's a, it's a big coup for the Phoenix Chorale to have someone with his background. And you set aside your rivalry. Well, we, and you're prepared yeah. to work with him on this occasion. I mean, I'm a diplomat too. You know, <laughs> if, it's in, if it's in the interest of everyone, then yeah. Yeah. Um, no, we we've. It's it, it, the best thing about it is that we're not the same voice type. So he's a baritone, okay. so we're we're never really rivals. Very good. Um, my dad was a baritone actually and studied at the Royal College of Music. Oh wow! Okay. But he um he he chose a different career path afterwards. I yeah. Think he, um, yeah. He um ended up becoming a civil servant but anyway um you're here in new york which is really exciting um thank you for stopping by uh and i know you've sung with the met here new york phil i mm -hmm. think um tell us uh, how does it feel to be back here in new york after presumably quite a long time yeah well it feels amazing to be back i mean it, it, it's i feel really lucky to have, to have had the chance to travel now this is the last trip i made really before the pandemic hit, I was mm. singing at the Met and then ended up doing some concerts with the New York Phil as well at the Lincoln Center. And as I left, uh, I was wondering, I wonder how long it'll be when I'm back. And I had plans through the year to come back and of course didn't, wasn't able to. Um, but now there's this trip and then I'm, I'm back in uh, April to sing mm. a concert in Carnegie Hall with the season opening now and the Met opening just the other night. And, um, Carnegie's opening, I think, on Wednesday. Mm. Um, so, it, fingers crossed, that will all go ahead. Um, so, it, but it feels, yeah, it feels, it feels amazing to be back. Brilliant. And I should give a shout out to Clive Glinson, who was uh, on season one of Brits and the Big Apple. Okay. It's very exciting that Carnegie is reopening. Yes. Great to hear that you're coming back as part of their program. Um, can you can you tell us a bit more about what New York means to you, and um, maybe tell us a little bit more about what you've enjoyed most about singing in some of these prolific institutions here? Well, I, I think it's probably the, the opposite way for someone who's born and raised in New York. But but the the the, the venues here, you know, the Met, Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Center. Um, you know all of the other smaller, exciting sort of off, you know, main main drag venues as well. It, it, to to a musician from the UK, these are destination venues. They are you know they're the big places that you you dream about performing in. Um, you know, and I'll never forget my first time walking on the stage at the Met, uh, or similarly, or Carnegie Hall or Alice Tully Hall, or you know these these are yeah. I I came here first as a um, Part of a choir so traveling with king's college back in the sort of 90s and that choir has an amazing reputation here as well and we were able to to sort of to, to sort of creep into these places before you're really professionally you know meant to um but to, to, to little things like i didn't know this but but on the on the stage at the met the whole uh sets are kind of put together with these bent nails so instead of so all of the kind of hinges of the doors they put a nail through and bend it over hmm. and that's the quickest way of being able to take the set down at the end of the day but it's also strong and safe enough to hold it up during the show but it's a kind of tradition that you get given one of these bent nails as when you make your debut oh, wow. and I didn't so I have one of these things that's amazing yeah 
it's a really little sort of artifact of you know rite of passage you haven't accidentally thrown it out no i'm gonna have it stuck it in your diy box exactly no (laughs) no. i'm gonna i'm gonna put that in some kind of memory box i guess wow that's amazing i didn't know that that's really interesting and actually a really lovely way of connecting with you know your your first performance there apparently when pavarotti uh used to sing at the met he collected these nails and they would someone from the stage crew would be sort of dropping them in front of him because he he had a sort of um uh, what's the word? Superstition that if he didn't find one on the way to the stage, then it was going to be a bad night. And so, oh. there, so there were people whose job it was to just drop a few nails. <laughs> That's so amazing. the story goes. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, and um, you said uh, when you first performed at the Royal Opera House, you yeah. didn't have time to be nervous. Do you mm. get nervous now? It's strange. Um, no. I, I, I hadn't really felt it until, I mean, I did a concert just the other day in, in Glasgow and it was the first concert back with a, a full audience, you know, and it suddenly dawned on me halfway through quite what an odd thing singing <laughs> is. And, and as soon as you realise what you're doing, you're sort of midway through an aria and you sort of, there's all these people looking at you. I mean, hopefully they're there to enjoy it, but yes. with masks on, you can't always tell. Mm. Um, and it just suddenly struck me, this is an odd an odd thing to do but I very quickly got and I think that's where the nerves used to come from for me mm. that that but the, the minute it becomes uh you know your usual and your, your sort of day-to-day then mm. then it, it, nerves aren't actually very helpful mm. but but harnessing that kind of adrenaline that goes with walking mm. on you know under the lights at the Met or something mm. that's hugely helpful mm. and if you can bottle that then you're then, and I think uh, over the last year and a half lots of people have missed whatever that feeling is that rush um, I mean, many people have been able to, to, to do incredible things online and, and in, you know, outdoors, but that feeling of being in a room with people mm. and performing together is, yeah, we've all realized quite how much we need it. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. Um, and yeah, as you say, it's been a very difficult time over the past 18 months with all of these institutions having to close their doors. Mm. For you personally, what, how has it changed the way that you um, work have you had to do stuff online or have you managed to still find ways to actually perform maybe um, in the open air or what's it, what's it meant for you so I it, well my I was meant to be doing an opera in Berlin in March and we got as far as the uh, dress rehearsal and then we were all sent home and that was the mm-hmm. last sort of you know and we were we've been rehearsing for however many weeks and but we realized that this was very quickly going to be quite a long hiatus um and yeah i i there was a very initially there was a big wave of people just doing things on online and putting up songs or uh and i re- i resisted that right from the beginning because i thought i don't think that's going to make me anything other than a little bit depressed <laughs> um but then conversations with with colleagues and people have you know there is an opportunity here to 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 sort of, we've, I, th- I think we've gone about t- a decade's worth of innovation in terms of on digital culture mm. um, through necessity. Mm. And there's been some fabulous stuff. There's a problem with the physics of it, which is that you can't really, um, music requires you to be very, very uh, close in time and syncing, mm. you know, if, if you're doing a duet with a pianist or you're playing with a violinist or something, it has to be, you, you can't really do it over the internet mm. because of the latency and the mm. time it takes but there are ways to create work and to 
you know, patch things together. But more importantly, I think, is the way that you can connect with a massive audience and that you're no longer, you know, your audience no longer needs to be in the same place as you and it doesn't really need to be in the same time as you. So you have, I mean, the National Theatre did something that went on YouTube here in the States. Mm. And I think it took something like $58,000 in the first weekend. But over the next couple of months, it took nearly $2 million of people just watching a show that had been filmed in London a couple of years ago. And a lot of people thought, oh, this is a, there's a market here, a wild west for well-packaged, well-created digital culture. Yeah. And you um, presumably just extend your reach to such a broader audience being able to do that. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I think the thing that, that, that I learned was I don't find it very satisfying watching a live performance that's streamed that because you've always got the audience in the room who you can see having a better time than you are at home <laughs> on your TV or your laptop or something or your phone. But if you create content for screens uh, that mm. has the same production values as the TV or the films that we all are blessed with at the minute, then um, then you can create some really really deeply moving stuff mm. and connect with people in a in a you know opera opera in a room mm. is I mean it's mind blowing. But if it's done well on screen, it can be just as powerful. Mm. And I was going to ask about um, your work. Um, branching into mm. music films mm. but just just to follow on the the covid um track briefly yeah. that you talk about the importance of the audience and actually you mentioned earlier when the audience is you know even now coming back but the audience being masked yeah. and so not getting that that kind of you know feedback as you're singing what what impact does that have or or actually is it fine because audience wouldn't clap until the end of a performance anyway and so actually it doesn't really matter um it's 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 kind of hard to explain but it it, it clearly matters to the performance the performers on stage to have an audience in the room something changes about the way that you focus and the way that mm. you collaborate together to to show something to other people um that said i did a lot of things that were for radio or for streaming or for recording and they had an incredible cohesion that you were playing and singing for each other on stage. And you were mm -hmm. making this sort of in spite of everything, you, you'd come together and then, you know, made the decision together to make this piece of music, whatever it may be, it's opera or concert. But just recently with audiences coming back in their thousands, you know, people are coming, really are coming back and, you know, there's that magic again. And mm -hmm. it's hard to define, but it is, it is about an energy and about a, mm -hmm. a sense that, especially now when it, again, you know, the, the audiences are still, it's still, it's not over it's still a risk to turn up and but it's it's a sort of decision to say i want mm. to be there i want to be mm. part of this and do you think that um we might move into a world where there are more hybrid performances i mean you mentioned how frustrating mm. it can be when you're online and you're seeing people in a room but presumably you know given that different people have different risk factors yeah. do you think that is something that that the industry will try and harness or do you think actually now that we can reopen, you know, the likes of Carnegie Hall, the Met Opera has just um, kicked off its season again in person. Do you think we will just default back to audience in person, everything in person, and then something separate on the screen? Or do you think there is a space for a hybrid model where you have the audience in the room, but you're also streaming it live to broader? Yeah, I think so. I think, I think the other thing that will happen is that, that, venues will spring up that aren't physical um 
I mean, conceptually, the you know, if you're Carnegie Hall, you're you need your room full of people. That's your business model. And if you take that online, it's mm. it, I'm sure it's fantastic, but it's not their reason for being. You know, um, whereas if you're a young opera company, I don't know, based in Phoenix, Arizona, and you you want to connect with an audience in London, let's say, the way to do that is through the internet. Mm. Um, but I think the hybrid model of course will exist. And I think all arts organizations that have digital as part of their offering will be in a better position than those that don't. Mm. Um, and I think, yeah, I think the possibilities are, and we don't, we don't really fully understand how audiences are gonna react when they can go back. Mm. Will the numbers for the online things which are artificially inflated because of you know buildings being closed, will they, stay as high as they have been um will there be a new audience of people who only watch things at home uh, is mm. it i don't know i mean there's lots of research going on um and i go to these sort of online seminars to try and figure it out and i, I the, the, there is a i think amongst the young people that rather than the normal audience going demographics i think there will be a quite a strong take up of digital culture mm. or i mm. hope so mm. And it's quite a nice segue into asking you to tell us a little bit more about your work producing mm. music films. Can you say a bit more about that? Well, I so one of the places I worked a lot, well, relatively, during the last year and a half has been in Sweden mm. with the Swedish Radio Symphony Orchestra. Um, and Sweden, of course, didn't lock down like the rest of the world, um, one of the few places that chose a different uh, route. Um, and because they're a radio orchestra, they don't rely quite so heavily on having an audience they have to produce you know a show a week for the radio um we were able to to, to do some quite ambitious projects there and turn the turn the auditorium the other way around uh and build up over this over the seats and so we st we started by staging a don giovanni opera um just for tv for for streaming um and to do that we we, we were blessed because the cast were doing nothing and they were happy to turn up and do it and we had to keep very strict protocols of how we, you know, interacted into distances. Staging an opera that's basically about, you know, people, you know, yeah. without touching is hard, yeah. um, but not impossible. But it, we learned a lot doing that process and we had to sort of come up with ways to um, to tell stories for screen. Um, and I think we've I've tried to take that on. And can you can you make a I mean, I think it's fair to say that an orchestral concert on television can be quite dull mm. um and once you've seen one you you have seen them all um so the the interesting thing tends to be the performer or the piece mm. or the venue or the mm. lighting but i i think if you apply uh if you have more musicians involved in the way that you're presenting and editing and showing kind of the ideas i guess that the composer came up with you can guide an audience through an orchestral concert in a sort of cinematic way, mm. set up a kind of conversation between the instruments and the conductor, as you would if you were doing a conversation in a film. Um, so we, we explored a bunch of that. And so I've been, I've been doing a mixture of things with choirs, with orchestras, with soloists, um, and cinema type cameras rather than mm. streaming ones. Mm. Um, and yeah, I think there's, I mean, I've loved doing it. Yeah. Um, and I think some of it has been really successful. I hope. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it has. Um, 
as you were talking, I was thinking, God, I grew up on watching Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet yeah, over right. and over. It's a similar kind of concept. hundred percent. So this, in a pitch to, to, to the Royal um, Philharmonic Society to try and get some funding for some camera equipment, I gave an example of Baz Luhrmann things. And, you know, you, if you think of the, the dancing in a film like Black Swan mm. or the opera that happened in one of those James Bond films, uh, Quantum of Solace, they go and see Tosca in, in Bregenz in Austria. And because that's been conceived for screen, it's thrilling. I mean, it was only sort of a few seconds. But you think if you could do a whole opera like that, amazing. I mean, it would cost a lot, but it would be amazing. Yeah, definitely. Oh, well, watch the space. Yeah. Um, one of my favourite songs that you recently sang for a dear friend of ours was Richard Strauss's Morgan. Oh, yes. A beautiful piece. And I was interested in um, what else, what, what do you enjoy singing? Are there any particular composers that you just think, yes, I'm glad that they picked that one? Oh, I, I, I think my answer to that is always sort of, it's, it's a little bit like food and sort of you kind of fancy what you haven't just had. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, Strauss, he, he wrote you know, for the soprano voice better than for the tenor voice, but I sometimes steal their songs and sing, <laughs> sing them. Um, then Mozart singing sort of magic flute is always that was my only sort of ambition as a as a young singer was to sing the magic really? flute. Um, so now I've now done that. So that's, that's that one done. <laughs> retire. Yeah, retire. Um, I get to sing a lot of um, Britain, Benjamin Britain, hmm. um, and that, that that sort of suits me suits me well. And I love yeah, I do love singing that. And Marla is the other one. Mm. Anyone who you really don't like singing I, i'm not going to say any of the composers who are alive <laughs> <laughs> another diplomatic yeah. uh, move no actually i i had a very good um teacher when i was at school and he he you know we were talking about this in a choir um choir rehearsal that there's clearly some pieces that are better than other pieces you know objectively better like bach is better than offenbach <laughs> and so, that is just you know fact fact but if you, while you're singing the piece, if you're able just to suspend your judgments and say, this is my favorite piece, then it will be better. You'll enjoy it more. You'll have, mm. so I, I still have to use that sometimes. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not sure I really have composers I don't like. I mean, there are composers that I find hard and, you know, especially if it's normally the language, like singing something in Czech or, Ooh, you know, yes. Russian, I, I just, I find that hard. Or even Italian, I prefer German and French and English. Okay. And, yeah. Presumably you can speak quite a lot of different languages albeit you think <laughs> particular you? phrases I the trouble is all of my German sound in rhymes it's all in sort of third person <laughs> plural it's all you know like Shakespeare or something um not so, so helpful can, when you're um, trying to order a beer in the uh, no I can beseech the, the barman to give me a quaff of his <laughs> finest ale but I can't say two pills in a please yeah can I ask a question about the accessibility mm -hmm. of classical music yeah because I think that's something that has been a challenge over the years getting better and people like clemency are yeah. doing an amazing job in trying to make it more accessible but how how do we make classical music more accessible to more diverse audiences to younger audiences how do you hook people in who may not necessarily have had that kind of upbringing yeah. that brings them into a sphere of classical music from an early age education is is obviously the, the, the upstream is that is where the real work can be can be done I mean I think at the same time I mean I'm a good example no one in my family was at all musical and we've never been to an opera or a concert or anything like that um, but it, just because of the opportunities I had 
just through singing, I was able to to sort of hook into this career. Um, but even now, I find going into the audience side of a an auditorium or a concert hall or a, you know opera house, you look around and you think this is made for people of a certain amount of money and a certain class and a certain the the context of deliveries is crucial and that's why I'm such a big fan of digital culture mm. because it it's as accessible as anything else online because of the immediate way you can see what your audience likes and doesn't like or connects with and you can find you can make very very rapid change in that vein I mean if you're thinking about how does someone like I don't know Carnegie Hall make itself more accessible it has to make the tickets very very cheap it has to you know have sponsors to, to to allow access for you know people who can afford to come and I, then I think that the offering on the stage must represent better the audience you want to attract I don't think there's enough diverse players conductors mm. composers yet in order to demonstrate the, the diversity that everyone desires and I don't think there's I really don't think there's a any more I, I don't perceive that anyone wants to limit access or opportunity but I think people are maybe in danger of being a bit tokenistic about it and trying to demonstrate they are uh, doing it even though uh, but at the same time there is a very good and genuine conversation being had mm. in all the right places about how to do this with the right voices being heard mm. so I, I'm it's a little bit like the Stephen Pinker argument this is the best time to be alive on almost any metric you want mm. that doesn't mean we're there we're not mm. there yet the problem I think is that that if you accept that the most useful work to be done towards any of these things is in further upstream when people are younger mm. that there's a the delay for seeing the change is a generation at least mm. and that's not an acceptable rate of change for anyone mm. so i don't have the answer but i'm glad people are talking about it mm. and i was um very privileged to go and see um the mets uh -huh. new opera fire shut up in my bones yeah. last week which was a really seminal moment yeah. for them yeah first black composer yeah predominantly black cast yeah. it was uh, really impressive and tell us uh you've given a couple of spoilers already huh. but um what's what's next for Andy Staples what should we be anticipating coming down the track singing wise uh there's some concerts in next in the New York will be in Carnegie Hall in I think it's April 7th and then I'm not sure what the next engagement in this part of the country will be but hopefully some of the things that got postponed over the last year and a half will come back and the rest of the things online there'll be some films coming out soon i've just made a um an orchestra in paris under an airplane doing a piece of uh, stravinsky called the firebird wow yeah under so, an airplane yeah in an aircraft hangar Goodness so that me. was that what was kind of acoustics does that uh offer much better than i anticipated <laughs> so we actually yeah. recorded the sound the day before in the studio because we assumed that the aircraft hangar would be crazy. And we got there and we were like, this is great. This and is so like... we're now making plans to do, you know, a big Verdi <laughs> Requiem. In the... Wow. Um, Move aside, Royal Opera House. Yeah, yeah. I, I, th I think, I mean, actually going back to your point about diversity and, and accessibility and, and sort of, you know, starting again and finding venues where you don't expect them is a very good way to sort of jumpstart people into thinking, oh, this is maybe is for me. Maybe I do enjoy seeing an orchestra playing a wonderful piece of work where I didn't expect it and I think that lots of these projects over the last year and a half because normal venues have been out of action it's sort of a little bit like the flash mob thing that was popular about a decade ago mm. but it's a bit more sustainable and a bit less there uh, this this concept that, that all the world is a stage is actually very valuable 
Andy Staples, thank you so much for coming on Brits in the Big Apple. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You're very welcome. Thank you. You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, brought to you by the British Consulate in New York. If you'd like to hear more about the work of the British Consulate, please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at UK in New York. Thank you for listening.